Last week, Pastor Rich started this new series we're calling Selfless. And he gave us a definition, a framework for which we're going to have an understanding of what this concept of humility truly means. He quoted the famous author C.S. Lewis, who sums it up, I'll say concisely and accurately, when he says, true humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. That was pretty memorable. Did that pop up in anyone's mind this past week? did for me quite a few times, um, mainly with my children, um, but especially this week, because uh, this was our second go-round. All five of us in our, in our entire family like caught that bug. So we thought you only got it once, and then you paid your dues and you were done, but we had that happen this week, too. So I had to learn a lot of humility because I don't do sick very well. Um, like, I'm man-cold to the nth degree, um, and I turn into, we have a two-year-old, and I'm worse than her, um, and she's a champ. So I love that we set the tone for this idea of selfless around this definition. Today, I want to talk to us about uh, the context of humility, the context of humility, the context in your life in which you understand humility, the context in your life in which you have perceived and experienced and encountered true humility. We're going to see from the context of our passage today that gives us an exemplary model for humility, how the context makes it a little more accessible for us today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2 and just be Actually, don't even read along. Just close your eyes, meditate on these words to the early church. It says, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Is there any comfort in his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then, Paul is writing, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly heartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try and impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. That picture of humility also paints a picture of the gospel. The gospel that when simplified, uh, my friend Derek defines it like this, that Jesus came to set us free. Jesus came from heaven to earth to set us free. But free from what? Just from sin and death? 
I believe Jesus came to set us free from so much more. See, I think that when we start with the example of Jesus, um, if you're anything like me, maybe you, you start to check out right away going, I'll never measure up because I'm not Jesus. I can't be Jesus. He was God. He had a little bit of help. Sometimes you, you maybe feel that way. Or, um, depending on the day of the week, maybe on Tuesday, like I think of it like this. Well, I could never be like Jesus, so I'm just going to go back to living my own way. I'm going to go back to focusing on myself. I'm going to go back to doing what's comfortable, what's safe, what's convenient, what's known to me, because that's what I'm in control of. So to this church called the Philippians, these people, this church in uh, an ancient city called Philippi, as they're reading the words penned by Paul, the apostle who established this church, who is now in another country in prison, waiting to be executed. How in the world are these simple words going to carry any weight? Where did this message come from? What gave it substance? What gave it significance? And it's not only in the truth that it is proclaiming, but it is also in the truth that they have experienced through the life of their friend, Paul. So we're going to unpack the context of this passage this morning. Um, And context is a fancy word uh, that means this. The circumstances and information that form the setting for an event, statement, or an idea, and in terms of which can be fully understood and assessed. So when we're reading God's Word, which this is, we believe, divinely inspired uh, by God, and it is His Word, everything in it is true, uh, but we have to interpret it today. We have to try and dig through it and figure out what does it mean for my life today because we live in a different time, a different culture. We have different experiences. And so when you maybe heard reading the Bible in context, it's a very, very important thing. And so I hope today that um, you don't get bored out of your mind with a history lesson, which we're about to go into. Um, If you are going to get bored, there's color crayons. You can color and look like you're taking notes. I'll be fine. But we're going to see in the context of this passage where its weight comes from. See, within context, when we're reading the Bible, it's good to think through a couple things. Uh, Not only the the history of what was happening at the time, but that shaped the culture. The culture um, that was going on to the audience that was receiving it. Because we know that culture is what shapes our mindset, culture is what shapes our worldview, culture is what shapes our perspective. And as we move from the culture, we can then start to think about the audience. Who are the people that are actually reading this letter? Who is this church? Does this church look anything like CTK Ferndale? Does this church look like, like anything in the Western American church today? And then we have to consider the author. Because from the author, we can start to discern intent and see patterns and and things that are common. So let's start with the culture. This ancient city of Philippi was um, established close to about 2,500 years ago, um, so before I was born. 
And what made it so significant was uh, they found in this region of Macedonia these mines where gold was discovered. And so at the time, the king of Macedonia, King Philip, came and he said, I want all the gold for myself. And he said, you know, this town needs a name. It can't just be called the gold mine. So he named it, conveniently, Philippi. After who? Himself. Philippi went on to die, and then he had a son named Alexander the Great, who used all that wealth to expand and conquer the world as it was known until he died at 32, because uh, that was an unfortunate turn of events. Then we don't hear about Philippi for a couple centuries uh, until there's this battle that's going on, and this guy that we're going to see rise to power named Caesar Augustus, who in the Roman Empire was out, and he actually defeated two friends who tried to stage a coup in this like civil war battle um, with Cassius and Brutus, and Caesar emerges victorious, and what we see happen in this time, in this city, emerge is this idea of emperor worship. Caesar elevated himself to the place of God. And so what started to happen and become a cultural norm was this idea of worshiping Caesar. Caesar was God. And because of that, Philippi became a highly, highly patriotic place. Uh, It was a strategic city. It had all the gold and all the wealth. It was a main trade gateway. And it ultimately became, because it wasn't part of the Roman Empire, but it became an established Roman colony, which was established to reproduce the Roman way of life in Macedonia. Don't, Don't go to sleep on me. This is important. Here's why this is important for these readers in in Philippi, for us to get into their mindset. We have to understand that that entire civilization that was built in the city, that was built around the worship of the emperor and promoting self-status, it was all about promoting self-worth and honor. Roman life was arranged vertically. If you remember anything from like school back in the day, history tells us that Roman Life was arranged vertically in these class systems, and it was preoccupied with the pursuit of status, recognition, and power, all under the name of honor. And it was clearly divided by classes of people. We have these classes of people. We have at the very top, below Caesar, is the Senate. That's the government, the people making all the decisions. They were only men. And then we had the equestrians. The equestrians happened to be uh, noble um, aristocrats, a lot of uh, form, like veterans. And I think it's funny that the equestrians, uh, maybe you've heard that word before, um, they were also horse owners. If you were an equestrian, that means you had a horse. Have we ever seen like status be attached to a mode of transportation? So you see how far back this goes and this is happening. Then you have the Decurians who are just like your academic elites and, again, the aristocracy. And those three top groups made up about 2% of the population. 2%. And then under them, there were citizens. Citizens had basic rights. They could vote. They could own land. They could own slaves. They had the right to a fair trial. They had 
conveniences. They had comforts. And then, at the very bottom, you had freedmen who weren't citizens. They had no rights, but they weren't owned as property by someone. And then you had slaves, the lowest of the low. You had a group of people who had absolutely no worth, no value, not only in the minds of their owners, but over time that thinking starts to creep in and they themselves had no worth or value and they knew themselves to be property. And what you see happen from citizens on up is what we've come to know today is the rat race. In Latin, there's a term for this progression, this climbing of the ladder called the cursus honorum. The cursus honorum, which is the race for honor. So you have this entire culture that is built around self-promotion, self-elevation, self-centeredness. What does humility have to do with any of this? Humility wasn't was a foreign concept. In fact, the actual language of humility, to be humbled, meant that you drop down the ladder, whether it was by your own doing or someone else's doing. To be humbled was a tragedy. To be humbled was tragic in the life of somebody in this culture. But the idea of honor and elevating and exalting oneself. There were opportunities to climb the ladder if you had the right conversations, if you gave enough money, you made enough money, you had the right last name, you had the right pedigree. So this little Philippian town, Philippi, was obsessed with self-status and being exalted. So why did Paul's words carry so much weight? to this little church. Why did Paul have any credibility? He wasn't from there. So when he says in verse 3, don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but also the interests of others too. So to an audience of people that are reading this, that live in that society, it would sound like the ramblings of a man that's gone crazy writing a letter in prison in another country. He probably drank some bad water. They didn't have a frame of reference for it. Who is this guy? Why did his words carry any authority at all? Why would they listen? Let alone be encouraged. The overview of this entire short little book that's a letter is encouragement and joy to withstand suffering and trial and tragedy. The tragedy of not being humbled, but the tragedy of being persecuted for their faith. The answer is found in the context. So we have to ask the question, if Paul's writing to an established church of people in the town of Philippi, um, at some point in time, he had to meet them. That had to happen somewhere. So when did he meet them? 
What was that first encounter like? Did it have anything to do with what he's writing about now? Because how he established that relationship with the Philippians was going to determine how they continued their relationship with him. So if we look back in Acts chapter 16, we see this guy named Paul who recently had had an incredible encounter with Jesus and converted from being at the top of his social status, being at the top of the ladder. He was the best of the best, the smartest of the smart. He had authority. He was going around hunting and killing Christians. Jesus literally knocks him off his donkey and says, why are you persecuting me? And he has a life-transforming encounter with the God of the universe and we pick up a few years down the road in Acts chapter 16. What's going on? This is Paul and Silas's second missionary trip. This is the first time that the gospel is taken outside of Asia where it was contained. And it actually makes its way to Eastern Europe. What, me, what, what that means and why that's significant for me to stop this morning, that means that this is the first time that it's actually moving outside of where it originated, to another continent, making its way over to us. 2,000 years later, the God of the universe, who's good and glorious, had this incredible plan that he was laying out, and he was using it through transformed, humbled, elite Christian killers, who he humbled, and he brings them And if you read early in the chapter, it talks about how the Holy Spirit actually kept them from going uh, more into Asia. And they wanted to go there, but they were kept for some reason. And while that was happening, Paul has this vision of this guy in Macedonia pleading and begging with him to come. And so Paul and Silas, obedient to the Lord, they go and they show up in Philippi, this Roman colony. What do they encounter? Well, they show up and they're just walking around ready to start praying. And they don't know. There's no Christians there. There's nobody that they have delivered the good news to. They meet a businesswoman named Lydia who becomes pivotal in the future of the church. Uh, She was uh, selling fine cloths and linens. And she like had her own status. But she said, I want to believe in this God. And so as they're there, the story goes, there was this slave, this girl who was a piece of property who was bound up by an evil spirit that allowed her to tell the future. And so what did she do? Did she, was she able to exploit that for her own personal gain? No, because she was a slave. She was someone's property. There was another human being exploiting her sad condition for their own personal gain. And so she went around and she was declaring, these are servants of the Most High God. They're here to tell us that Jesus is Lord, which you don't say that Jesus is Lord in a culture that only says Caesar is Lord. And so they finally get fed up. And Paul casts out this evil spirit. And this girl is returned. She's free. In the name of Jesus, she's free for the first time, and we don't know how long. She's free from the bondage of, in her soul, but she's not free 
from the control of this master who didn't care about her one bit. It says in verse 19, her master's hopes for wealth were now shattered. So they grabbed Paul and Silas and they dragged them before the authorities in the marketplace. The whole city was in an uproar because of these Jews. They shouted at the city officials. They are teaching customs that are illegal for us Romans to practice. So Paul shows up and he starts causing trouble because what their normal was was no longer being accepted and and they didn't know what to do with it. They weren't about to tolerate it because what it meant was how they viewed themselves. Everything they did to care and elevate and push up themselves was now being compromised. We see that a mob quickly formed, in verse 22, a mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas and the city officials. This charge is brought against them. They're given no fair trial. And they were stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten, and they were thrown into prison. Without any chance to give a defense, They're stripped publicly and beaten. They suffer humiliation and pain. They're tortured, thrown in jail. And all for what? So now if you go back to to maybe BBS or Sunday school, this is the part of the story we remember, right? So Paul and Silas, they're in the prison and they have every reason to be frustrated and defensive because they want to be vindicated because they didn't get a fair trial. They didn't get what they deserved or what they wanted. And, And so this is the part of the story where what around midnight, they're shackled up. They're not sleeping. They're having a party. They're singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and they are thanking and praising God for who He is in the midst of not only injustice, but immense suffering. What? Who does this? Who chooses this? I'm probably hungry and I'm angry. But they had some greater hope, some greater joy that surpassed their circumstances. When we live lives like that, it starts to make a statement. When we live lives that aren't so focused on ourselves and what's going on right in front of us and how people are viewing us or what they're going to think about us or what is next for us that we are in control of, and we actually lift our focus to the God of the universe, glorify Him for who He is, thank Him for what He's done, remember and reflect regularly on the joy of being His, people are going to notice. Who notices? Sorry, let me finish the Sunday school story. There's a big earthquake. And they're free. The gates are open. The shackles fall off. They have an opportunity to self-preserve, to preserve their life and to leave and to make a run for it. But do they? 
No, also in an act of humility, what does Paul and Silas do? They stay. The jailer woke up to see the prison doors wide open. He assumed the prisoners had escaped, so he drew his sword to kill himself, knowing that that was probably going to be his fate if he let these prisoners get away. But Paul shouted out, stop, don't kill yourself. We are all here. This jailer was probably pretty perplexed. What? Why? Food's not that good. The other prisoner's singing wasn't that good. What happens? He calls for the lights and he ran to the dungeon and he fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. This man who was at a state in the social stratosphere that was higher than these prisoners humbly falls in a culture and a society of, among a people that don't do this. And he asks, what can I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas reply, see, they hadn't spoken the good news to him yet. They hadn't spoken the gospel to him yet. They had only lived it and modeled it and shown it by their lives. Take note of that. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved along with everyone in your household. And they shared the word of the Lord with him and all who believed in his household. Even at that hour of night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. See, Paul's not about his life. He's not about saving his life and making a run for it. He knows that he is about bringing his life at whatever the cost into a place so that people might find life at the cross. He wants to bring about the truth of who Jesus is. He wants to deliver and bring the good news. So they go on and the city officials come to them the next day and they say that they want them to like go away quietly because they realize that, hey, we don't really know who these guys are, um, but we didn't give them a fair trial or anything, so they want to keep it hush-hush and just get them out and go back to their quiet, simple, self-serving way of life. So we see in verse 37, Paul replies to them, and he maybe was a little snarky, I don't know. They have publicly beaten us without trial and put us in prison. But we are Roman citizens. What? Uh-oh. These city officials who were all about the order and their hierarchy just compromised it. And if they were going to compromise it, what does that mean for everyone else that they're trying to lord over and rule over and control. They were alarmed. What if this gets back to Caesar, that we are no longer being an exemplary expression of this Roman society? It begs the question that we have to wrestle with today. Why would Paul wait till then? To make it known that he was a citizen. Why would Paul wait to make it known that 
he actually deserved a fair trial and that he actually didn't deserve anything that he received. He could have avoided all of that suffering, all of that beating, being thrown in prison. He could have avoided all of that if he had only taken advantage of his citizenship and elevated himself to where society said he belonged. What kind of statement is he making? Who was this man who would willingly lay aside the comfort of his rights to suffer and risk his life for people he didn't know? Is it starting to sound familiar yet? See, here's the glorious truth that Paul the Apostle knew because of how powerful his encounter with Jesus was and how transformed his life was by knowing Jesus personally. He knew that in his effort and attempts to try and establish a new family, a little outpost of heaven, if you will, this new Christian community in this place that wasn't going to be about serving or loving anyone sacrificially, which is what our faith is completely all about. He knew that people were not going to view other people in the way that Christ viewed any of them. So he had to give them a tangible model. He had to be the example. Paul knew that in this new community that was going to be forming where people didn't know how to care for one another, they only knew how to like climb up the ladder for themselves, that there was going to be the elite people that had rights and maybe things were going to get difficult for them a little bit, but um, they still were going to be treated with the rights that they had. But he knew that in this community, there was also going to be slaves and the people that were treated like property that didn't have any value in society. They didn't have any way to fight for themselves. They didn't have any rights to avoid the suffering that was going to come their direction for their faith. And so Paul, just maybe, just maybe, he knew and hoped that by showing, by lowering himself in a place where nobody lowered themselves, to the lowest status possible and not using his rights to his own advantage, he might be able to demonstrate and show them this foreign love that we don't have a rational human box for. It changes the way that we hear these words penned in Philippians chapter 2. When we put ourselves in the mindset of its first readers. Paul now has the stories, the legend. There's people that are reading these words that never even met the man. They just heard of who this foreigner was who came and suffered Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? 
any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? He's opening up this chapter with rhetorical questions, reminding them, hey, when you live this way, when these things are true in your life, Jesus will be glorified. These are the things that help us live and exist and operate in community where the community is not about me, but it's about we. And he says, then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly. When was the last time that happened? Like, agreeing wholeheartedly? No, I have my opinions That's what I want the world to know. I want my voice to be heard. I want my voice to be known. I want to feel like I have something to say. No, he says, agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and one purpose. He's talking about unity. Now he can say to these people that have never experienced the following words he's about to say. He says in verse 3, don't be selfish. Don't try and impress others. Don't climb the ladder. The status doesn't matter. But be humble. Embrace the tragedy, the societal tragedy of being humble and thinking about other people before yourself. And think of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out for your own interests only, but take an interest in others too. This is the type of humility that we see in context. What's your context for humility? How have you experienced it? How have you seen it demonstrated? See, upon further study, and um, I already told Rich I'm not correcting his quote from C.S. Lewis. I just wanted to give context for it. Um, It turns out that that definition we started with, C.S. Lewis never penned anywhere. But in fact, that's a, a paraphrase that has derived from a quote that he had in mere Christianity as he described what a humble person looked like. And as I read this in context, who comes to your mind? He says, do not imagine that if you meet a truly humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he's nobody. Probably you will think about him, all you will think about him is that he seemed cheerful and an intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you dislike him at all, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. 
That paints a different picture of humility. That paints a picture of humility that goes, yeah, I can think of people like that. I can think of people that when they ask me a question, um, it's almost uncomfortable and unnerving like how sincere and intently they are waiting for my response. I can think of people that, yes, there's times when I get frustrated at how in the world can they have such a cheery disposition in the midst of all the suffering and chaos going on around them. See, there's something about clinging not to ourself and our status, but clinging to the person and the work of Jesus Christ that allows us and frees us to this place where we don't have to be about self-promotion or caring about the status that others give us. He continues in verse 5, he says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. And the worship team can start to come forward as we close this morning. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. What? Though he was God, He didn't consider equality with God. Being at the top of the ladder is something to cling to. But instead, instead, he gave up his divine privileges and he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. That means that the, the Jesus we serve, the Jesus we follow, who we ascribe to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords, is a dishonored, crucified slave. And he chose that so that we might be free. Free from the climb, free from the anxiety, free from the stress, free from the fear of measuring up. It says in verse 9, Therefore God elevated him to the highest place of honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We're going to close this morning with communion. As we go into this song of worship, as the band starts to sing, uh, come forward as a family um, with a friend and serve yourself communion. You take it back to your seat and as you are prompted, as, as you reflect on the cross of Christ, you can remember his sacrifice by drinking the cup that represents his blood and the eating the bread that represents his body that was broken. See, you don't need to be tempted to climb the ladder anymore. You don't need to be tempted. You don't need to think you're nobody anymore. Because in Christ, you're somebody. You're loved. I hope you take this away today. Summed up 
simply. Jesus chose humility so we might know liberty to bring God's glory. Jesus chose humility so that we might know liberty to bring God's glory in and through our lives. As we take communion today, remember, it's not just to remember what you regret doing. It's not to remember that at all. Communion is is an opportunity to remember what Jesus has done. God, will you be glorified as we reflect on your sacrifice this morning? Will you be worshipped as we think about how you have transformed our lives? Will we be mindful of our opportunity to be your example, to be your good news of hope and love as we humble ourselves to love others? Amen.